Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with James Evans, co-founder and CEO of Command Bar, a developer tool that's raised $24 million in funding. James, thanks for chatting with me today. Yeah, pleasure to be here. So before we begin talking about what you're building there, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, I studied computer science, uh, worked uh, investing in, in private equity for a couple of years, but then I started working in, in startup land, always wanted to start a company, always very interested in web development. I'm old enough to remember when CSS was new. The first thing I started building was an ed tech tool, actually, kind of like a classic first startup project for someone who studied computer science to kind of solve your own problem as a student. So that was for about a year. Uh, and then I've been working on Command Bar uh, for the last uh, two years and change. Nice. We're going to dive deeper to, into the company in a second here. But one question we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick is what book has had the greatest impact on you as a founder and entrepreneur? And this can be one of the classic business books or just a personal book that's influenced how you view the world. Yeah, so many potential options. There's this book called Never Split the Difference, which is like an incredible book that I think everyone should read. It's about kind of negotiation, <laughs> which may feel like kind of a weird topic. <laughs> to or kind of a zero sum topic to kind of inspire a founder, but something that it helped me realize early on in kind of founder journey is the importance of open ended questions. The mom test is another book that talks about kind of early customer interviews and, and things like that and also stresses the importance of open ended questions. But, you know, I think when I first started you know, working on startups I'd, and doing customer interviews and, you know, just like talking to people, um, you know, day to day. I didn't ask a lot of open-ended questions. You know, I was someone who wanted to ask like smart questions. And I always felt like open-ended questions were kind of dumb and disrespectful. Like if you're going to talk to someone, like you should take the time to, you know, read what they put into the world and like ask them a specific question about problems they have or whatever. But this book talks about how essentially you can learn a lot more about a person, whether it's, a, you know, someone you're thinking about hiring or potential investor or a, a customer by just asking them open-ended questions that let them talk about what's on their mind. And so I now deploy this in all aspects of both work and life, try to kind of tee people up to, to share what they're feeling as opposed to kind of showing how smart I am or how much research I've done by asking them like a real singer of a question. Kind of like the, the Joe Rogan tactic. Nice. <laughs> I love that. Can you share an example of an open-ended question you asked in the early days of Command Bar? Yeah, it's a good question. I uh, Something like, you know, what are your priorities for this quarter? Or like, what are you most excited about on your roadmap? things like that, that yeah, that doesn't take me any prep. Like I can ask those questions to literally any product manager and have no idea what they work on. But you'd be amazed at like the, the quality of answers you get. And it's so much more interesting than asking, you know, are you excited about X? Or I saw you wrote about Y, you know, how's that going? Because that's just a much narrower conversation. Makes sense. And could you share with our audience the mom test? Can you walk us through that framework? Yeah, so mom test is a great book, um, kind of an unfortunate name, but Basically, the, the kind of key takeaway from the mom test, at least as I saw it, was essentially when you're doing kind of idea validation, and, and it kind of relates to, I think the central topic is when searching for an idea or testing product market fit, but I think it applies to a lot of stuff about startups, you know, from specific feature launches to new product launches, et cetera. Basically, the idea is like you should never ask people, would they want to use 
something if I built it. So, you know, hey, I'm going to build, if I built this cool new mousetrap that, you know, kind of morbid example, <laughs> you know, uses lasers or something that's going to catch mice better, like, would you use it? And the premise is like, that's a terrible question because people are really bad at actually thinking through whether they would use it. And also, they're likely to not want to offend you. And so it's really easy in that situation in a customer interview like that to be like, oh, yeah, I would totally, I would totally use it. That sounds amazing. And then, you know, you go off and build it and then you come back and they're like, ah, sorry, like not going to happen this quarter. There's just not enough mice running around or we're happy with our existing mass trap vendor. And the, the book talks about instead, you should do two things. One, just sort of ask people like those open-ended questions that we were talking about to try to understand what excites them, what problems they have, what do they pay for, what's on their mind. And then instead of asking people for like a very loose commitment of basically non-commitment of like, would you use X or does X sound exciting? You instead ask for concrete commitments. So instead of would you use X, be like, hey, yeah, I think I'll have a prototype ready in a month. Like, could you introduce me to five people? That's kind of like extracting a, a social commitment. The person that's like putting their reputation on the line to introduce you to them. Or, hey, would you put down a deposit for $1,000 for my new mousetrap? Like, that's obviously a much higher intent commitment than um, just saying, yeah, it sounds cool. So we, we apply that like all the time, basically in every customer interview we, we do. And how many do you do customer interviews? Is that something that you're doing on like a daily basis, weekly, monthly, quarterly? What does that look like? I try to do it every week. We do have kind of like ongoing meetings with a lot of our customers. And so I, I try to attend like as many of those as possible and try to do a mix of new folks, you know, some of our long-term customers. So don't get to it every week. But when I'm not like actually doing the, you know, actually in those conversations, we, you know, record basically all of our sales calls and customer calls. And so I try to try to listen to as many of those as possible. Nice. Love that. Now let's talk about the origin story. Can you take me back to the early days of the company? Yeah, sure. Commander is kind of a weird company and product, especially in the early days. So as I mentioned, first thing that Richard Bennett and I or my co-founders started working on was, was an ed tech tool. So, you know, for the sake of this conversation, essentially kind of generic, you think of it as like a generic sort of B2B SaaS tool. It, it, what it was is a, a tool for um, helping computer science instructors kind of teach and provide feedback on student work. So we're building this. It was something that we had wanted in college. And essentially, long story short, you know, six, nine months in, the product became really complicated. Turns out like uh, people who teach computer science uh, have a lot of feature requests. And we were that our strategy was basically like respond to every feature request as fast as possible. So the product became like super top heavy, very kind of hard to use. No one was really using all of the features. New users were having a really hard time like getting started. So we were doing a lot of uh, manual handholding and we, we like sort of needed to solve this problem. And I think also very reflective of problems that a lot of you know, SaaS tools fall into. Mm -hmm. um, and so our solution, we didn't want to do like a big redesign. And it was just three of us and we're not really we basically no design talent. So our solution was this UI pattern called uh, Command Palette, which is basically a search bar for actions. So like in the EdTech context, say you want to like duplicate a course or you know remove a student or create a new rubric item, stuff like that. There were entry points for all of those actions in the product, but they were often like nested or they were you know, hidden behind words that users didn't associate with that action. Mm -hmm. And so we built this, this command palette. We didn't come up with the idea. Like it existed in, in tools like you know, Sublime and VS Code and 
Superhuman had a really popular command palette at the time, and they were definitely an inspiration. So we built this command palette and it just like worked really well. Like, you know, users could search. And if you're an user, you could just search for what you're trying to do. And if you were using the tool a lot, it was like a really, turns out it was a really fast sort of index into all the functionality of what we were building. As we kind of had this moment, like we were building this and, and seeing it work so well, we were just kind of like, why doesn't like every app have this? Like, it just seems like such a universally useful building block, you know, should be as commonplace as chat. In fact, it's like often a better user experience than chat because it's so much faster and always available. And essentially, like we concluded that uh, we wanted to take this pattern to all of software and that the reason perhaps it hadn't taken over was A, it's like kind of hard to build well, B, it's like hard to maintain. And so if it you know doesn't keep up with your app, then it's not gonna be that useful. And C, kind of our other insight was that we thought it could be really useful for non-technical users as well as technical users. Like at the time, it was kind of mainly in dev tools and productivity oriented tools. And so essentially, we we set out to kind of bring this one pattern to the world like we wanted to build a new building block for software and that's that's basically all we did for the first two years of the company is um kind of go really deep on this one building block since then we've kind of expanded the product to be more of kind of a toolkit to help users get more out of software generally and so the, the command palette is still one of our most important widgets we have a bunch of others but the origin story was we really just wanted to build this this one building block really well nice i love that and talk to me about market categories. So I'd introduced you as a developer tool. Now I don't know if that was the right category. <laughs> UX optimization platform. So what are you? How do you define that category? Yeah, I think we're still still trying to answer this question. I think, uh, you know, when we, we were kind of the only people doing this command palette as a service thing. And so for a while, we were just kind of that. And people would ask us, like, hey, are you, you know, an alternative for like a product tour? Or are you like a search company? And we kind of used to describe it as we're our own thing, but we kind of exist in the orbit of, you know, customer success tools like, you know, Zendesk, Intercom, search companies like, you know, Algolia and Elastic. And then this sort of like amorphous category that's sometimes called digital adoption. And I'd say like if we if we had to fall into a category, it would probably be be the latter uh, digital adoption, which, you know, sounds very, very <laughs> one point web 1.0, but basically includes like all tools that make other software easier to use. There's a lot of those tools. And I think we've basically just, as we've grown our customer base, we've just had a lot of customer pull to help users in multiple ways, um, both kind of when they have intent, which is what our kind of search widgets are really good at. And also when they don't have intent, which is when kind of you want more of a proactive experience like a, a product tour. And looking through the site, I see some really impressive logos. We have AngelList, Gusto, Freshworks, and I'm sure there's many, many more. How did you go about landing those logos? I think that's yeah, every founder's dream is to have logos like that on their website. But what happened behind the scenes? How did you pull that off? And, and what do you think you got right? You know, sometimes, honestly, it just feels like like luck and kind of path dependence. I think once you get some really high quality software companies to use your product, that's kind of the best business card is you just kind of say, yeah, these are other really high quality teams are using us. And then even if someone doesn't really understand how they could use your tool or they don't crack it yet, they think there must be something there because you know these other teams they respect have 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 used it. I think in our case the logos are are kind of even more meaningful because for us to put a logo on our homepage, it means that the company has put us into their product and exposed us to their users, which is like the highest compliment and also like a risk on you know on their part, right? Like we're a startup and and they want to put their best foot forward, and so we we really need to nail the user experience if we're going to be exposed to you know users directly. And so I think that has definitely 
helped us because people, when they see those logos, they both respect the teams and they also kind of know what it means for us to have those logos. In terms of how we went about getting companies like this, you know, I think it really, I don't, I don't think we did anything kind of particularly arcane. I think it was just a matter of having kind of like a differentiated take on a problem that a lot of people had. And so, you know, like I mentioned earlier on, people would often ask us, like, are you a replacement for these other onboarding adoption patterns? And what we usually say is, you know, no, we're not a replacement. Maybe we're solving a similar job to be done. But what you should do is you should like try us out. And this is, I think, what worked really well is we would position Command Bar as kind of a no-brainer experiment where we'd say, look, like, we have examples of you know situations where we've kind of moved metrics really meaningfully for other companies. Um, we usually like to focus on conversion and sometimes retention because they're kind of really close to the P&L for a software company. Sometimes we focus on ticket deflection because obviously that's a cost argument, which is also close to the P&L. And so we say, look, like we've moved these metrics before, like we think we can move these metrics for you. And the cost on your side is is relatively minimal to try us out because you don't have to invest kind of much, if any, engineering investment to get started with these experiments. Like that's why we exist. And if you don't like us, then you can just, you know, if we don't generate results, just, you know, no harm done. And the other, you know, question that sometimes people would ask in the early days was build versus buy. You know, why should I use command bar instead of kind of building these experiences myself? And the answer was just like, you totally can build yourself. Just don't build before you get run the experiment using us because you really don't want to waste resources running the experiment. Use us to do the experiment. And then if if it works, but for whatever reason you you want to DIY, then you know, go ahead, rip us off. And so I think that experiment ROI oriented framing resonated with a lot of teams. And is that your biggest competitor then, would you say? It's just companies building it themselves? Or what's the competitive landscape look like? You know, we started off hearing that a decent amount. I'd say that I think it's something that people bring up and they think about because they know it's always an alternative. But I think the software economy has become a lot more modularized. And I think people have started to realize that it's often a lot more effective to peel off part of your product and outsource it to a specialized company like us, just because we're, you know, putting all of our resources behind it. We're amortizing the learnings we get from all of our customer base into into the product. So we don't actually, people ask about it, but we don't actually see it as kind of a, a competitor. I'd say like the main competitor there's going to be two kind of axes. The digital adoption category definitely has a lot of other vendors in it. And so, you know, we see folks there sometimes. Um, we have, we have, we're one of the only players in that space with, that's kind of trying to like differentiate on strategy versus execution. So I wouldn't say we get into like bake off situations very often because we're a pretty unique product. I'd say the kind of biggest competitor, and I think this is true for a lot of startups, is just no action time, you know, trying to make it so that, yeah, command bar is an experiment. But do you have time to run that experiment this quarter? Like, is it the is it the highest priority experiment? And I think to stand out as the highest priority experiment and and not be on someone's like someday section of some product manager's to do list, we just really focus on the ROI. And we and we and we you know we talk about we show examples of of similar companies for whom we drew an ROI and just try to make it like as low cost to experiment with you know the highest upside. Pick a metric that really matters to the company and try to create a convincing case for how they can move that metric without a lot of effort. Are there any examples of like maybe like the top one or two metrics that you see companies measure? Yeah, there are so many different ones. We always try to start with something that's close to the PL because like every software company has PL and every software company is trying to convert users, retain users, and and spend less to support them. So we usually start there. I'd say sometimes, you know, teams have a specific kind of maybe a list of, you know, five 
areas of product friction that they kind of know are contributing to bad things. And so sometimes we'll choose to start there. But you know, usually we try to focus on kind of things that are, you know, we know that if we move them, people will, you know, want to adopt us and, and want to, you know, pay us a piece of the value we're creating. We try to stay away from metrics like engagement and things like that just because they're harder to interpret and harder to assign a value to. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And what about internal metrics. Are there any numbers that you can share that just demonstrate the growth, traction, and adoption you're seeing right now as a company? Yeah, I think the, you know, my favorite <laughs> uh, vanity metric is just the, the number of end users we reach because you know, obviously we're embedded in our customers' products. And so we, that's how we kind of gather end user exposure. And so I think we passed 10 million end users a little while ago, which is a pretty cool number. What did you guys do to celebrate that? <laughs> I don't really think we did anything. I think it was like a, you know, a Slack message or something with a lot of, <laughs> a lot of emo- emojis. <laughs> nice. I love it. And in terms of rising above the noise, is there anything else that you think you've really done right or, or really nailed in your efforts here to you know, get that type of growth and to be able to reach 10 million years? Anything else that you can reflect on that was uh, unique or different or just insightful on that journey? <laughs> yeah, I don't know about unique, different, or insightful. I, I, I don't really have a good answer to this one. I, you know, to be honest, I, you know, maybe this is the answer. I, I try not to think about fundraising too much, except when we are fundraising. I think that's like, you know, the common advice is, you know, it's like a binary switch. Like you're either not fundraising or you're fundraising. I think there's definitely, you know, a lot of, a lot of noise, especially at the early stage. But you know, if you have a differentiated product with a you know, big opportunity, a good team, and you know, evidence that you've been executing, I don't think you really need to do anything like especially unique to stand out. I do, I do think sometimes people make the mistake of trying to tell VCs what to hear or like at worst trying to like goal seek their company to fundraise, which, you know, if you're running out of cash, that could make a lot of sense. But I think especially at the early stage, it, um, when you're just getting started, you know, raising seed, I think that's like kind of exactly the opposite approach you want to take. When we were raising our seed, you know, we didn't know we were going to broaden the the product suite and we thought we were just going to focus on the search widget for the foreseeable future. And, you know, we'd often get questions from investors that were, you know, like some permutation of kind of what's the big vision here? <laughs> you know, what's beyond this, this for kind of initial thing? You know, there's an open-ended question for you. And I think when, when we got questions like that, you know, usually, you know, it felt like the person on the other side of the table was kind of like fishing for something more exciting than what we presented. Um, and so it was really tempting to say, oh, you know, this is just the start. You know, once we once we take this command palette widget to all of software, that'll be a stepping stone for us to actually build the thing we want um, or, you know, a wedge to, to do X, X, Y, and Z. But, you know, we just stuck to our guns and was like, no, nah, I mean, that is the vision. <laughs> and we think that's a really big vision, you know, changing, adding a new building block to um, how, you know, humans interact with software is something we're really excited about. And if we can do it, we think it can be a, a cool business. And I think that is actually kind of often that conviction is appreciated and like more what you know investors are looking for at the early stage and also helped us find partners who were like excited and believed in that vision specifically like we really didn't want to 
shape our story for VCs and then like end up in a situation where we're at a board meeting and the VC is like, oh, well, yeah, it's time to do, you know, it's time to do part two. And you're like, oh, but, you know, I just, I just told you that because I wanted to raise money. Like that's, that's obviously completely untenable. <laughs> yeah. Not an ideal meeting to be part of probably. Totally. Totally. In the go-to-market journey, is there a specific challenge that you experienced and overcame that you can share? I think the figuring out how to create urgency on the B2B side, like we were talking about earlier and, and positioning your experiment or your tool is something that is solving a kind of actually urgent pain point is something we kind of already talked about. That's probably our biggest, that's probably our biggest learning. I think one, one thing that's been interesting about our go-to-market journey is we've kind of really let the market dictate where we should take the product beyond that sort of initial bet on this command palette widget. When we got started, we expected our ideal customer to be basically one of two things, a developer tool or a productivity tool. The thinking was that, you know, develop command palettes are already a fairly established pattern in dev tools, like developers want these experiences. It's really just a build versus buy. And we felt really confident about, about our case on build versus buy, like we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Or a productivity tool because, you know, that's what the power users are. Power users, you know, like tools like Superhuman, you know, they'll, they'll appreciate the productivity gains. What ended up happening was we certainly got customers in those domains, but we ended up seeing a lot stronger pull from companies with non-technical users or companies where users actually weren't spending a lot of time in the product. And this was, and this was just inbound, right? Like we were just seeing a lot of companies like this. And we kind of finally, when we took a step back and like looked at, you know, all the companies we were talking with and where Command Bar was creating the most value, et cetera. What we realized is this pattern is kind of almost more useful for users who either because they don't have a lot of experience with software or they're just not spending a lot of time in the tool, like, you know, aren't masters of the tool. Because search is such a familiar pattern, basically, you know, everyone knows how to search. It can often be easier to search than use the underlying tool. Um, and so we started getting a lot of traction in domains like, you know, HR software. Where, where users are, you know, tend to spend less time, you know, using software tools um, and also don't spend a lot of time in the tools themselves. And so they never kind of take the time to understand the you know, topography of the tool. They're just like, they get in, they've got a job to do. They want to like set up a 401k for their employees. And that's like, that's just what they want to do. And we definitely, I think, started paying attention to that early and started kind of building specifically for that use case. And that's definitely why we, or that's one of the reasons we decided to kind of expand the product portfolio to kind of cater to user experience in general and kind of being that last mile delivery for UX overall, because we saw that those were the kind of jobs we were being hired for. Mm, interesting. Now for the last question, I'm not going to ask you about the vision, uh, given what you just said previously, <laughs> but yeah, it's not having this you know, big next step that's going to come. So let's just end maybe with um some aspirations around the numbers. So you're at 10 million users that you touched today. What's like the three-year goal? Have you thought through that at all? You know, I say our, our big goal, our kind of uh, North Star is just to be in, in every, I don't know, that's a you know, big grandiose statement, but we just really want to be in every software, every piece of software that's serving users. That's not just like SaaS. That's also like, you know, your bank account. I think our final boss is probably the DMV. Um, <laughs> we can get into, get into the DMV site. We'd probably help a lot of people. We want to be a, you know, a layer in every app and, and serve as that last mile for user experience. Just think there's so much human energy that goes into creating tools or creating features and capabilities and, and software tools. And you know, those features and capabilities are just you know, often hard for people to access. I think it's, it's pretty crazy to me that, I think I'm getting this right, I'm pretty sure there are conflicting data on whether 
computers have actually improved worker productivity in most domains, which is like really shocking if you think about it. We have these like magical calculating machines, you know, it'd be pretty horrifying if they're not actually, you know, yielding productivity gains. So I think, you know, if that's the case, you know, clearly the interface between us and those computers, you know, isn't, isn't wide enough. And, you know, we want to change that. We want to, you know, peel off these, you know, pieces of user experience that are common across pieces of software and be that last mile that connects, you know, all the great work these development teams, product teams are doing with users. And I think the really exciting opportunity for us is once we, you know, go beyond the, you know, 10 million and get, you know, into the, you know, hundreds of millions, we can build experiences that take advantage of the fact that we can follow users across apps. You know, today, most people who interact with command bar are only doing so in one app, but that's slowly starting to change. And we see the value of command bar to a user is way higher if they use us in multiple apps because they know how we work. They're familiar with the search bar works. They know how to set custom shortcuts. They know how to snooze and nudge, et cetera. And so we've got, you know, big plans that depend on us, you know, having a lot of end user density and excited to just improve the day-to-day of more users. Amazing. I love it. James, I'd love to keep you on and ask another 20 or 30 questions here, but we are up on time. So we're going to need to wrap. If people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? Um, commandbar.com. We're on you know Twitter and LinkedIn as well. And I'm on Twitter as at Basilite. Yeah, I'm sure there's not too many James Evans either. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't search for James Evans. I'm <laughs> awesome. James, thanks so much for taking the time to share your story and talk about what you're building. This is all super exciting and look forward to having you back on in a couple of years to talk about everything that's happened. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Brett. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 